The reading is from Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favour. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, Whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, She is the Moabitess who came from Moab, back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under, those, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favour in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz, 
to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Please have it open on your lap. There's a slide. Here we go. We're in the middle of this story, Ruth. It's a story of redemption. That's why what Daniel shared was so helpful. But another middle-aged confession to begin with. My uh, inner Jeremy Clarkson is appearing. As soon as I got past 40, my inner Clarkson started to manifest himself more graphically. It means, basically, that I'm a grumpy middle-aged person. Uh, This is manifested in a whole host of ways, often in driving, like Clarkson, but uh, not just limited to that. So it comes across mainly in cynicism. So I'm very cynical when it comes to reading a new book or a film, listening to something. I just start to say, that's a cover of an old track. The original was better. Yeah, that's just a reboot of an old film. That's a Greek tragedy and stuff like that. And so it warmed my heart when I read a newspaper article a few years ago in the New York Times that said, do you know what? There are only seven original storylines in the whole of literature. You can have a story. I've written them down. Overcoming the monster, like Jaws, Rags to Riches. There's the quest narrative. There's a voyage and a return. There's the rebirth. There's the comedy There's the tragedy, and that is it. There are seven basic storylines, and everyone else just kind of riffs off those uh, themes. But it's not just seven storylines that are then uh, worked through in films and literature and on the stage and whatnot. Each story has a shape. So I think there are primarily two shapes. One could be circular. Groundhog Day is the clearest example of this, where there is a beginning and then there is a kind of a journey through time or space and you come back to the beginning. Back to the future, you could argue. That's another one of a a beginning, a journey and a return. And it kind of expresses the predominant worldview of Ruth's day and age, where there was an understanding of time and space in many people's minds that was cyclical. It was a repeating kind of whirlwind, the circle of life that never ends. But Naomi, who was a believer in the God of the Bible, and Ruth, who accepted Naomi's God and said, I want to follow him as well, And all good stories have a different shape. They are not circular. They're actually a kind of a J shape. A J shape. Here are some examples of famous stories. I wish that was stronger. Can we close those blinds and maybe that would be better? Here are some famous stories that have a non-circular shape, but they are more of a J shape. Uh, A form and a style that there is a death and then there's a resurrection, a death and a resurrection. So the classic lame is where there is a tragedy at the beginning. There's a great loss. Will this man's life ever change? And then someone invests time and energy and resources and his life is changed. And it ends in a great victory with a few French songs along the way. There's Annie. Annie loses everything. It's absolutely hopeless. No one cares for her. The original one is far superior than the second one. Um, and the ginger hair is wonderful and essential. And you know what? Towards the end, Daddy Warbucks. Daddy Warbucks, what a great picture of kindness and generosity. Dora, Disney get this pretty spot on most times. Almost every Disney film has this J shape to it of redemption where there's death and loss and then there's resurrection and hope and life. Beauty and the Beast sneaks in there as well. And this story in the book of Ruth is kind of like the ultimate, perhaps the... uh, the best example of a love story there is in the whole Bible, 
and it has this shape. It's not circular. There's the underlying lesson that we're being taught of death and resurrection, of great need and loss that's met in only one place. That's how the story began last week. We were there. We saw how we were at this time, chapter 1, verse 1, when the Bible's wild west. It's the time when the judges ruled and there was death and bloodshed and whoever had the quickest, whoever was quickest on the draw would win, so to speak, even before the invention of the handgun. And in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 and 6, there's just tragedy and loss. Naomi, the first character that we meet of prominence, this lovely lady, this godly woman, she loses everything, including hope itself. She loses her husband. She loses her two boys. She has empty hands when grandchildren could fill them. No one can even know her name by the time we get to verse 5 of chapter 1. She's the nameless woman. She's lost everything. No standing, no prospects, no hope, no joy, empty hands, memories in the wall. But there are signs of hope in the last sentence of chapter 1. You might not be able to pick it up if you're just picking up the story, but from from famine, chapter 1, verse 1, there's now, she's heard on Radio Israel that there is food back in Bethlehem. And so she's begun this journey. She's arrived back in Bethlehem. And this person of deep joy, happiness, that's what her name means, has become a person of bitterness and sadness. But there are just shoots of hope, pardon the, the pun. And two vulnerable women... Naomi and one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, journey back into town, into Bethlehem. They've got no food, they've got no family, but there are just these faint undertones in the theme tune of Ruth that there is hope on the scene. And that's where we left it last week, and here's chapter 2, verse 1. Loads to say, but here's what we've got. God has a plan. What an unimaginative heading that is. But it's true. Let me prove it to you. There are a few things worse in life than having a spoiler. So I had one last evening. I was going through the the phone on the phone, going through the paper on the phone, excuse me, and I saw All Blacks are beaten by the South Africans. That may be in honour of Ruby's arrival in the Clark's family, but I don't think it was. I think the South Africans just outplayed the All Blacks. I hadn't watched the game yet. I hate it when you are watching a TV programme, a film, you've recorded something on sports, and there is a spoiler. Chapter 2, verse 1, there should be a spoiler alert. We meet the hero, and his name is Boaz. Naomi won't find out who this guy is until the end of the chapter. And it's a spoiler, but it's there on purpose because this chapter is written, as it were, from God's perspective on the actions. Chapter one, you've got Naomi's perspective and the centrality and increasing importance of Ruth to her life. But by the time we get to chapter two, we meet this hero. And it's from God's perspective, showing that God has a plan. Amidst all the sadness, there is a purposeful progression in this book. And so we meet Boaz. The guy's name sounds like he should be a hero. Boaz. Like you should drop your voice in honor of this person. You imagine Schwarzenegger. But we don't know what he looks like. We don't know if he's the Poldark with the shirt off type of guy. We don't know if he's more of a Colin Firth, Mr. Darcy with a chiseled jaw. But there's something about him as we meet him, that he is a hero. 
His name means strong or strength. But look at chapter 2, verse 1. We don't know what he looks like, but what we do know, what is even more important than how he looks, or his age, it says he's a, he's a worthy man. He's a man of standing. This uh, hyphenated uh, Hebrew word means that you are someone of standing and godliness of worth, someone of valor and importance. It's said in uh, Judges 6 of Gideon, he was a great man of valor. But it's not just men, it's women too. Proverbs 31, the, the lady of uh, godliness at the end of the, uh, of, of the meditation of Solomon of, in Proverbs, she's also called a person of worth and standing. Men and women can have this quality. And here, the quality of this man's character begins to emerge. These two great needs are there. How will Naomi and Ruth be cared for? They need food because it's been a famine and they've heard that there's, it's harvest time. They need food, but they also need favor. They need food and favor and they need a family. And how, even with the spoiler alert of verse 1, are their needs going to be met? In verse 2 and 3 and 4, we begin to get a sense of the quality again of Ruth. Not only is she a lady who has covenanted herself to her mum-in-law in chapter 1, I will be with you even to death. I will die to myself and to my prospects so that you would know life. I'm going to do whatever it takes to care for you even if I have to die to my own hopes and dreams. I want you to prosper. That's chapter 1. She's a remarkable Lady Ruth. But now we should see just what a hard-working, humble, godly woman she really is. I mean, Naomi is still filled with bitterness. That's where we left her last week. Her heart is broken. She's got shattered dreams and empty hands. And so all the initiative, verse 2, falls on Ruth. Do you mind if I go and glean? We need food. And so often the answer to our prayers are in our own resources. And so with a broken-hearted mother-in-law, Ruth takes the bull by the horns and she goes and gets to it. Now, gleaning... It was really a beggar's work. It was back-breaking work. It was going through bins, like a homeless person needs to do, like a needy person has to do, to fill their stomach with whatever they can find on the streets of Epsom and Yule. But Ruth went out with Naomi's blessing, just hoping that she would find a few scraps from maybe one loaf of bread, maybe a bagel-shaped sort of bread, maybe a French baguette-sized bread. She would go out and she'd work hard from dawn till dusk because God in the law had insisted that there would be provision not just for the prosperous people, but for the needy people, for the poor. And so once you'd been through with your scythe, once the barley harvest had been harvested, any bits that had fallen behind, you want to go back and check. You were to leave those for the poor and for the needy. The corners of your field, they were to be left untended for the poor and the needy. It's God's provision for the poor. And so hardworking Ruth goes out, hopefully, verse 2, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind. Anyone in whose eyes I find favour. She needs food, she needs favour. She needs a family. She needs mercy. And so she goes out, hopefully, but perhaps with trepidation, 
And verse 3 tells us that she begins to glean. I don't know how she was looked upon as she kind of snuggled into a field, so to speak. But in verse 3, a surprise appears. As it turned out, she found herself in the field belonging to someone from the clan of Elimelech. As it turned out, these are so important words. We could say, literally, as a chance chance to quote someone else in all the fields in all the world she walks into mine would be another way of putting it as luck would have it would be another way to put it if we push God out of the picture but just imagine the coincidence that God has planned Ruth happened to choose and be directed to the only field belonging to this man Boaz, who we know from verse 1 is going to be the hero of the chapter. But it's not just that she arrived at this field that happened to belong to Boaz. Boaz just so happened to be coming to check his real estate at that time. And it just so happened that Boaz saw hard-working Ruth with sweat on her brow. Fancy that. Well, perhaps he does later on. But this is the point. This is just so many providences, coincidences, likely happenings, happening at the same time, that it shows that God has a plan for hard-working Naomi, well, broken-hearted Naomi more like it, and hard-working Ruth. And God is planning and orchestrating and kindly scheming behind the scenes. It just so happened that Ruth found her way into Boaz's Field. And by the way, Boaz is of the clan of Elimelech, who we met in chapter 1. Now, there's been the odd evening in our home, courtesy of Netflix, that I've suppressed my male desire for action, or thrillers, uh, or bloodthirst, on a uh, Saturday evening office, and I've delved into the murky world of the rom-com. Um, it's something I don't choose to go into. It's, uh, if it's not the rom-com, perhaps I can go into the slow place world of the period drama. Uh, And being a middle-aged Clarkson-esque sort of person, by 20 minutes in, I'm struggling. I'm tapping my fingers, and I'm, yeah, that would never happen. Um, That's no chance that that would happen, and uh, yeah, they'd be dead by now. That kind of stuff. I'm just so cynical. And I look at, at my lovely wife, who's not here so I can embellish it, on the side of me, on the sofa, and there's a tear running down her face. She's completely in the midst of the drama. Or there's a smile thinking, yeah, they're going to get together as we get towards the end. And I'm thinking, that's ridiculous. This could never happen. I don't know how you understand history. I don't know if you come here kind of cynically or suspiciously and you're thinking you're making way too much of that point. Think about the religions of the world. Islam has an understanding of history that is very fatalistic. It is written. The God of Islam, Allah, we say very respectfully, is far removed from the world that we know. It is written. He's distant. He's in control in an, uh, an Islamic understanding of things. If you're a humanist, actually, I, I'm not a religious person. I believe in humanism. I believe that things happen just by chance, just by coincidence. I want to, want to respect that position. But look at the number of coincidences that happen for these two people to meet. It's a remarkable probability that if you were doing the mass or see Chris Nash, he could work it out. The probability of these things happening is so off the wall. The Bible doesn't speak of a fatalistic understanding of history and time and space. It doesn't speak of a chance or meaningless occurrences. 
Everything is carefully stitched together by the hand of a loving, knowing, sovereign God. God is king over all, but he knows the hairs on your head. God rules over nations and orders times and seasons, sends storms, which in our understanding is so hard to understand, sends things to break and shatter our dreams so that we would trust him more. So hard for us to understand. God is in complete control. He is sovereign. He's the ruler, but he's also loving and he's ever so kind. Everything happens by his appointment. Everything that's happened in your last week is under God's control. Everything that he's led you into is always, is always for his glory and for our ultimate Christ-shaping good. Sometimes that's impossible for us to see when we're in the midst of suffering and pain. But when you're in that crucible, when you're in that place of difficulty and trial, don't be tempted to distrust his loving care, his providence, his gentleness, his kindness. God has a plan. Nothing happens by accidents. It just so happened that Ruth, who needed food and care, a family and favor, happened upon a man called Boaz, who was strong and worthy. God has a plan. To do what? God has a plan, secondly, to display his provision. He has a plan to display his provision. This is the real meat of this story. It strikes me that in the Old Testament, the more I read it, if you really want to get to know someone, pay very careful attention to the first words that come out of their mouths. It can be very revealing. Look at verse 4. Here is Boaz. We know that he's a worthy man, verse 1. But do you know what? His relationship to his workforce is unique. He's a man of standing. I mean, look at the guy, verse 4. He comes to his workers. They don't say, quick, let's get to work. The boss is here. The suit has arrived. Quick, let's get to it. They're working hard because they love their boss. And in comes Boaz, and he says, the Lord bless you. I want to say it in a northern accent, but I won't. And they return saying, the Lord bless you as well. There's, there's a mutual kind of family working endeavor in the streets or in the fields of Bethlehem. But look at verse 5. Very quickly, very quickly, something or someone catches his eye. Boaz asks the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? The Hebrew for that is, check her out. I looked it up this week. It, that's what it means in the original language. You can trust me. He is absolutely laser-guided, focused on hard-working, humble Ruth. It's not a denigrating term. He's saying, who is she? I want to get to know her. She's caught my eye. And once again, we don't have the details, but you can imagine that Ruth, bless her, was a bit of a mess. She's worked from dawn till dusk. She knows that she's not just trying to get enough grain to feed herself. She's trying to feed Naomi as well because she loves her. She's poor. This is sweaty, hard business. She'd be wearing the only clothes she's got that will probably be a bit ragtag. But look at Boaz, this worthy man. He sees past the sweat, past the holes, past the uh, kind of matted hair, and he sees something of her character through the words of the report. Now, if you're a cynic like me, you should be thinking at this point, yeah, but this would never work. I've read chapter 1. Ruth, verse 2, we're reminded, well, she's a Moabite. She's an outsider. Verse 6, double use of the word. She's a, 
She's the Moabitess who came back from Moab. Okay, we get the point. She's from Moab. She's not from here. This will never, ever work. The odds are huge against it. I mean, she hardly fits the, uh, the internet dating requirements. You know those kind of new platforms for meeting people? Where you, you check the boxes for the person that you're trying to meet. I mean, uh, here's Boaz. And uh, he's looking on the internet. Would he choose Ruth? Because Ruth's profile looks like this. Um, homeless. Penniless. Previously married. Of foreign descent. A brand new believer. Currently doesn't own own home. Living in a homeless shelter. Uh, she might, if she's very honest, saying, and I get by living off food scraps. Oh, and by the way, I've got a very angry mother-in-law. <laughs> There's not a lot going for poor old Ruth. No one would go near her. She's one that you would just quickly scroll over. But Boaz, being a worthy man, listens very carefully to the words of his foreman and sees past all of the exterior issues that she has and is very drawn to her heart because here is a wonderful, humble, hardworking woman of faith. She's asked permission to work hard in someone else's field. And Boaz, brothers, listen to this. Verse 9, he's a model of kindness, compassion. He's a man of integrity. He's not naive. Boaz certainly is not naive. Look at how he treats her so kindly. There's no demeaning speech. There's nothing in his mannerism that's condescending. Look at verse 8 and 9. Verse 8 and 9. Don't go and glean in another field. Stay here with my girls. Verse 9. Follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you. Verse 15. He, Boaz orders his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Let her go in front of the combine harvester. He's saying... Bless her, protect her. Don't you dare lay a hand on her. You can imagine Boaz being the kind of guy that he's short or tall, you know, kind of broad at the shoulder, narrow at the hip. Whatever shape he was, he was a man that you wouldn't mess with. And he wants to honor and protect Ruth, who needs food and family and longs to find favor. And then the two of them meet. And then we go into Jane Austen territory. You can imagine kind of a slow dance as they interact with one another. They meet for the first time and exchange words. Verse 10, she bows before him, her face to the ground. She's overwhelmed with his kindness. Why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? She knows who she is. In Ruth, you see the wonderful beauty of a hard-working, humble woman submitting before someone who's dealt very kindly with her. In Boaz, you've got a wonderful picture of biblical masculinity. A man who uses his influence and resources to protect a person who's in need. He wants to see her prosper. Wonderful pictures of godly women and godly men. And you could just stick at the romantic level. But as I've dug more, look at verse 8 and 9 again. There is slow development here as if they are slowly circling one another. That's what the camera would do if you're directing the film. It's not like the clubs of Epsom or London or the films of Hollywood, where you meet someone, look at someone, and then jump into the hay. There's mutual respect in verse 8 and 9. There's fascination, there's intimacy, there's respect. 
There's kindness, there's intrigue. They're edging in around one another. It's what an older generation would call courtship. For a younger generation, I think it's called romance. We don't do that anymore. We look at externals and very rarely look into the heart. And you may be thinking, oh, come on, I really think from verse 8 and 9, if that's the best chat-up line Boaz has got, he needs to up his game. What Boaz says in verse 8 and 9 is incredible. Let me look at it with you. Here you have a wealthy Israelite landowner who is prepared to stoop down to a foreign lady who's on the lowest rung of the social ladder. Listen to the term of endearment. My daughter, listen to me. He's not speaking down to her, he's speaking kindly. Probably indicates that he is an older man speaking to a younger woman. And then he slows down again. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here. Those two words, stay here, are absolutely key. We've heard them before in chapter 1, verse 14. It's the word cling. It's the same word that you get in Genesis 2, 24. In other words, cling, hold on to, cleave. We use this language of two people who are getting engaged. Two people who are coming together to make one flesh. And when you see it like that, Boaz is pursuing her respectfully, honorably, kindly. But he's breaking all the rules. Look at verse 11. This is why I'm drawn to you. It's your faith. I've been told about all you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Boaz sees through the social care aspect of this story. Ruth is not driven by just caring for her needy mother-in-law. It's an expression of her faith. She loves Naomi's Lord because he's become her Lord as well. And then there's the first date as you get down to verses 13 and 14. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. The only time in the whole of the Old Testament that this phrase offered her is used It's unique and it's important. Here you've got the Lord of the harvest stooping down with all his resources to serve someone in need. This tremendously tender and poignant moment, serving not just someone in need, serving a foreigner in need. And here's the point, and it's, if we miss this, we miss the whole point of this chapter, I believe. This is not a simple love story where Boaz gets carried away and piles up 30 to 50 pounds of grain that she would carry hard-working Ruth home, as well as the leftover pizza that she ate and gave them to her mum. It's not just a love story. Boaz, in Boaz we're to see the great compassion God has for the needy in society. Boaz is just the hands and feet of the Lord. And he deals abundantly and kindly with the vulnerable and the needy. It's the whole point of this picture. It's God who leads Naomi and Ruth back to Bethlehem at harvest time. Fancy that. It's God who leads Ruth to Boaz's field, as it turned out. God is in complete control. Boaz is the immediate close provider for Naomi and Ruth's needs. But behind Boaz is the hand of God, who is deeply moved 
by the needs of the poor and the vulnerable. Now this has hit me straight between the eyes this week. Think about the accumulative wealth there is in this room. Think of our resources. We have pension pots. Uh, some of us rent, some of us own our own home. Some of us have one car, some of us have two, some of us have none. Some of us have student loans, some of us have ICES. Some of us have loads of cash, some of us have credit that we can lean upon. Very quickly, we would get into the millions of pounds of resources in this school hall. And the question that struck me this morning, as I've read Boaz throughout the week, how do we use the resources that God has entrusted to us for those in need in our society. Now at this point you're saying back off. But I won't because I can't. Because God has challenged me deeply this week. Friends, as people come into our society, our little group, our community, would people meet Ruth's and Boaz's? Godly people, godly men and women who respect people of the opposite sex. Especially uh, if you have resources, how do we treat, how do we care for people in our community, those who are in need? Do we have a heart for the vulnerable? Do we have a heart for the needy? Are we practical and thinking through how we can help our needy neighbour? Or do we turn the other way? Because we know it will be costly. We know it will be costly of time and resources and energies. Because it strikes me that we are encouraged to ignore the poor, to ignore the vulnerable, to ignore those who will make our life more difficult. If you make money, if God blesses you in that way, if you're given money, you're tempted the more you get to add more to your social standing and your welfare. The more you make, the more you deserve, the more you kind of deserve to spend on yourself. And the Bible turns that right on its head and says the more you have, the more responsibility you have to give away all that God has entrusted you with. It's not ours. God has entrusted us with resources to care for those who are in need. The less we spend on ourselves, the more we can help those who are spiritually poor, physically poor, mentally struggling, emotionally needy. We are so wealthy, and this is so hard. Because if we're Christians here this morning, we struggle to do this just as much as our non-Christian friends. And the question I've been struggling with is why? Why do I find this just as hard as people who have a different motivation? I mean, if I know the same standard that Boaz knew to leave stuff around the edges for those in need, why am I not so generous as he is? Why am I not so generous to bless not just someone that I want to relate to in a different way, but Boaz is pouring out the love of God into Naomi and Ruth's lives? And so I think this is the answer. I will not be generous with my time and resources and energies until I see that in God I have all I need. If I see in the gospel that God cares for me, that he's been so bountifully generous to me, that he will care for me, and he has, then out of all that he's entrusted to me, can I be generous? But if I doubt his character, if I think he won't come through for me when things get hard, then I'll hold on to all that I have, time, energy, resources, and say like Gollum, mine, the precious. I'm not going to give it away. I need that. I must have that. I deserve that. But if I understand the gospel in a deep way, then all the stuff that the world pursues, I can see right through it, and I can give away bountifully, generously, 
to others because God has a plan and he has a plan to display his provision. And I believe that's through you and me to Epsom and Yule. So God has a plan to display his provision, but also finally quickly to demonstrate his kindness. God has a plan to, demonst- to display his provision and to demonstrate his kindness. Look at verses 18 to 23 really quickly. I don't know whether it's easier to go to work or to wait. I reckon waiting is hard. Imagine Naomi, she's at home, she's on coffee number 15, and she is drumming her fingers, waiting, waiting, hoping, praying that Ruth is going to come back with just a bit of grain for just one sandwich or two. And just imagine how verse 19 is expressed. Where did you glean today? She's got uh, three months' wages on her head as she returns. Where did all that come from? Did you rob a bank? That kind of thing. You know, it's absolutely crazy how much she comes with. And then the penny drops in Naomi's heart. Verse 20, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And the scholars say, we don't know if they're talking about Boaz or if Naomi is saying God has done this. And then she says, that man is a close relative. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. After all the death of chapter one, all the disappointment, all the tears, Naomi's heart is being flooded now with light and hope and joy because she can begin to see what God is doing in their little story. The key word here is hesed. It's kindness. It's a covenantal promise. It's God's never stopping, always and forever love. And bitter Naomi is beginning to return to her original sweetness and faith in God. We don't know how the uh, remaining time of the season kind of panned out. In verse 23, we, we read that they stayed there for the next two, three months, harvesting day after day. Maybe, maybe Ruth came back with 30 to 50 pounds on her head every day. It would have hurt her neck by the end of the season. We don't know. But all too quickly, in those two, three months, in a matter of weeks, through Boaz, Naomi and Ruth are sensing the kindness and the providence-keeping, or the promise-keeping nature of God. Because look what Boaz does. Here are some points. Boaz, in his actions, well, he's been seeking the outcast and making them his family. He's been serving the hungry at his table. Serving them, getting his uh, cloak dirty. He showers the needy with his grace. Here, take 30. No, take 50 pounds. Take the water that an Israelite woman would draw for you and serve a foreigner. And they find rest under the wings of his protection. It's all Boaz. But there was once a man called C.H. Spurgeon, great preacher up in London. And he says, you know what? Jesus is our glorious Boaz. And now look at those points and think through the gospel. What has God done for us? The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, came to seek and to save the lost, to give us new names, to give us all his blessings, so that we would be part of his family. We who are outcasts and orphans are now welcomed at his table where he's prepared for before us, as the psalmist says, good things. He showers the needy, you and me, with his grace. And there is ultimate rest under the wings of his protection. There's loads of different pictures in the Bible for what it means to be a Christian. And here's one. 
coming under the wings of his protection. How did uh, Ruth do that? By staying in his field. So here's a weird image for you as we close. If you're not yet a Christian, think through this image. If you are a Christian, meditate on this. Where is Ruth safest? Under the wings of the protection of Boaz. If you leave that field, there is danger. If you're not yet a Christian, can I encourage you to think through the gospel, the good news of Jesus deeply. He's pursued us with his love. He's laid a table before us. He seeks us with his grace and provides protection for us. That protection is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. There is shelter in his field. And friends, if you're not uh, grasping the gospel, come along each week. Keep coming along. And I pray that you would understand. Seek out a Christian friend. And friend, if you're a Christian, remain in his field. Don't be tempted to leave the safety of the protection of, not Boaz, but of Jesus Christ. Because under his wings and his wings alone, there is safety. Jesus is our glorious Boaz. Because God has a plan to display his grace and his mercy. He does that in the life of Boaz and the experience of Ruth. And in the cross of Christ, he's done that for all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We thank you that Jesus journeyed from heaven to earth. He got dirty for us, and not just that. He journeyed to the cross with sins that weren't his own, but they were mine, and the sins of the whole world, all those that would be his, that would be part of his forever family, he took upon his shoulders. Thank you that he died. Thank you that he rose. Thank you that he's seated at the right hand on high now. And before us, in the future, when he calls us home, there will be a feast where he will serve us with good things. Thank you for this wonderful redemption story. And thank you that it echoes the greatest story ever told of Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate Boaz. Amen.